0: Take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Amplum. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say?
1: Argraves kicks inside the 50. Bounces in front of Burns. Burns magnificently. This deserves a goal. And he's got it. What a classic. Forward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi Breed, what a goal, this'll be magic!
0: He can't break free of the tackle and
2: Roof rolls it along the line,
0: wow. that is amazing!
2: Martin in comes Doggin once again, Doggin strikes goal What's he kicks, he for a it through!
3: Steve Johnson, another one who can't really hope and gets up to the... It's the Cats Whiskers. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Cats Whiskers as we celebrate the careers of the men that have formed the history of the Geelong Football Club. My name's Wes Cussworth and I'm joined by Mark Brunger, Gus Marini and Anthony Petkovic as we catch up with renowned player manager and media personality Liam Pickering. Before turning his hand to managing many of the game's elite players, Liam was an outstanding footballer himself, winning the 1997 Kaji Greaves medal. Originally from Store, Lamb was selected to pick 48 in the 1987 national draft, playing 22 matches for North Melbourne, before moving to the Cats for a further 102 AFL games.
1: Scott bashes it in the Malatalis direction. In turn, Pickering, lovely shot, goal. Jet. Pickering gets the first goal. Hocking, well done to Brewer. Brewer to Pickering. 35 metres and another one. And this man has been good
2: Pickering in the first quarter. From 40 metres, round it comes for a goal.
1: Steve Hocking out wide. Pickering has it, forwarded the wing. He can virtually run unchecked to the 50. He kicks from 55 metres and it's a good looking
4: effort to
2: Liam, welcome to the show, great to have you with us and uh, maybe we can start off by uh, taking us back to the uh, to the early days down in, up in stall there, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your junior career there and did uh, you could play senior football there as well?
0: Yeah, hi guys, uh, good to be here, um, yeah I did, um, I played my, all my junior footy obviously in stall and then um, yeah, played two years in the senior team up there, so um, we only had under-16s. We didn't have anything after under-16s. So it was either under-16s, and then it went into to reserves as seniors. So I played two years in the senior team up there in the Wimmera League, which is a good league, and we had a good team. We made the finals in 86, and then uh, we won the flag in 87 before I was drafted. So uh, to play, it was the only senior premiership I played in, which was, uh, was really enjoyable. I played in the, in the unfamiliar role for me these days or when I was playing league footy of sent out forward. At 184 centimetres. So, um, yeah, to come down to Melbourne after that as a midfielder. But I was drafted. uh, I think my draft profile said something like a centre-half forward from stall. So, I I was pretty disappointed when I turned up at 184 centimetres. But anyway.
1: Now, Liam, you had four years there at uh, North Melbourne and then made the switch to Geelong. Um, and I imagine it was lack of opportunities at North was one of the reasons for shifting clubs, but you came to a club that had a midfield of Buddha Hocking, Paul Couch, Mark Besto. You must have wondered what you'd walked into.
0: Yeah, well, it was a bit like that, Gus, to be honest. Um, we had uh, a scenario, I guess, where uh, I had five seasons at North Melbourne, actually. I was drafted in 87, so I didn't debut till 89, but I played the whole 1988 season as well. So... 22 games in five years, predominantly in the midfield, um, in the second, certainly in the reserves. But in the senior team, it was very much uh, you get in and you played a bit of uh, midfield footy, but realistically, they played your mainly in the bloody forward line. So that made things a little bit more difficult when you sort of played good footy in the VFL, which was the reserves then, um, as a midfielder, and you'd come into the side and all of a sudden you'd uh, be stuck in the forward pocket. So didn't get those opportunities. We had a strong midfield and then to turn up at Geelong, that was at North Melbourne, and then to turn up at Geelong, well, I was very surprised that actually Geelong wanted me to be honest, because North didn't want me at the end of the 92 season and North finished about maybe 10th or 12th and Geelong made the grand final. So I remember going to meet Malcolm Blight and saying, well, when Steve Wells rang me, I was playing cricket for a start. So I sort of thought, well, this Is a joke, joke call for a start. There's no chance Geelong will want me, and as it turned out, they did. And um, by uh, after a bit of convincing that it was actually Stephen Wells, I went down and met with Malcolm Blight, which I said I need to meet with Blighty because, um, one Blighty was my hero, I wanted to meet him anyway, and secondly, um, was that I wanted to uh, to sort of just say to him flat out that I, I don't think that uh, I don't think I'm going to get a game here. And he said, well, that's the beauty. I'm the coach and I'm telling you that you're going to play on the ball. And I sort of said, couch, hocking, bestow and the like, I don't think that's going to happen. He said, well, you're going to play in the midfield, I'm telling you. So I gave my cricket, uh, not up completely, because I, I was in the state squad at that stage. But it basically from that perspective, I, you know, my old man said, you're
4: mad not to give it a go. So I did. Because when you moved to Geelong, there there was almost a mass exodus of North players moving to Geelong like yourself, Darren Steele, Lee Tudor, Tim McGrath, was this all, I know a few of you guys were part of a trade, but was this something that was just purely coincidental or was there something about the North fellas, one following the other over to Geelong? No, there
0: wasn't anything deliberate, I must say, um, because <laughs> Bluey went the year before and Bluey had really, Bluey McGrath had really struggled to get a senior game as well. But we were all playing a lot of seconds, footy at North. Uh, Wayne Bush was the coach just didn't rate any of us to be honest certainly didn't rate uh, Bluey and myself and Lee Tudor Still, Darren Steele played a fair bit of footy so Blue went first, played really well in his first year at Geelong I think he finished top three in the best and fairest in his first year which was a magnificent effort really um, and played in a grand final and then we all got basically penciled into until a couple of years ago the worst ever trade that was ever done so Pick 123 for Darren Steele, myself, and Lee Tudor. And Lee <laughs> Tudor and I are best mates. You know, so I remember ringing Lee Tudor and telling him, I said Stephen Wells on the phone. He goes, yes, yeah, so did I. And I thought, oh, here we go. Didn't know Steele had been thrown into that mix as well. So Geelong ended up getting us three for, as I said, for a pick they used on Marty Christensen, who was already on the list at North Melbourne, who'd done his knee. He was a former Geelong player, of course, Marty, the moose. And uh, they redrafted him with the pick that they got rid of Steely, myself and Lee Tudor.
3: Of course, Pickers, you alluded to the fact that you, uh, you were in the state squad at that particular time. And, and I know that you spent, I think, in excess of 170 games or so at North Melbourne. How close were you in that sliding doors moment to maybe going a different direction and, and really taking your cricket very, very seriously and, and maybe going even further?
0: Well, I, look, at the end of the 92 season, I'd had a good district career year. Um, and I was added to the state squad, which was strong. Uh, and I, after the 22 games in five years, I just thought I wasn't good enough to play AFL footy. So I thought I'll concentrate on my cricket before the Stephen Wells call came. And I wasn't even thinking about where I was going to play footy, to be honest. I, I thought, oh, if I had a kick somewhere, I will. I'd had opportunities to potentially go and play in the sand floor, but I didn't really think that that's something I wanted to do. So I thought, that oh, no, cricket's my goal. I wasn't good enough at AFL leverage. So, um, Basically, I said to uh, my old man, I said, "Oh, look, I'm going to concentrate on cricket," and that was all good. Uh, I played some trial games with the Vics, uh, played second eleven games with the Vicks and played well in the trial, like played quite well in the trial games to the stage where John Grant, the chairman of selectors, had said that I'd play the first shield game. But as it turned out, um, <laughs> Dean Jones got surprisingly dropped from the Australian team, so that's what. So that went out the window. So uh, they're not going to pick me ahead of Dino, as you'd expect. So uh, as it turned out, I uh, I missed the first Shield game, which was against Queensland, which in hindsight was probably a good thing because it was Craig McDermott and all that crew. And I probably would have been able to handle them. I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to. And then uh, then Blighty came into the into the equation and he actually rang Les Dillman. I told Blighty, I said, I'm going to finish the cricket. I'm going to have a go at it. And he said, well, that's up to you. Um, I'll ring the state coach and tell him you can just do your cricket until uh, the end of the cricket season. So I pretty much didn't do any pre-season with Geelong that first year. I, I just played a lot of cricket, played second 11 games, played an academy game um, you know, against uh, against the ACT, with, uh, which I got to bat with Ricky Ponting and, and Michael DiVanuto and these sort of characters, which was great. In hindsight, it's great. I mean, they were just kids then. So, yeah, I mean, I, it was close. If I hadn't got the opportunity to play for the Vicks, Um, and played and and did okay, which I probably wouldn't have, Um, I would have probably gone down that track. But, yeah, the old man was always a believer in me, more of a believer than I was, I must say. And he said, just give July a go. And that's basically what I did.
2: Pickers, uh, I want to take you uh, to a a dark and stormy day in 1994. Finals time and uh, out at VFL Park Waverley, where it always could rain, even on a sunny day. And uh, the uh, the semi final that day, and uh, I can remember sitting in the crowd in the grandstand there at VFL Park Waverley and listening to Teddy Whitten on the old K Rock and Three uh, GL back in the day. And uh, the news went round the ground that uh, Bearstow, Couch, and Hocking were all going to be missing that day against Carlton, and the the collective groan that went around the ground that uh, that time was uh, was almost deafening. But it's possibly one of Geelong's greatest performances in a in a finals game because uh, Geelong came out wiped the floor with Carlton and and you had thirty one touches so it must have been one of the uh, the highlight games for you. Yeah,
0: it was. Uh, it was a, it was a really strange week because we pretty much knew that Bester wasn't going to play. He uh, Toby, I think he'd hurt his groin for memory, uh, and then Buda was in doubt and. For Buddha to be in doubt, he was seriously in. and you know, must have been sore because Buddha doesn't even miss many games, let's be honest. Uh, and then Couchy pulled out the night before after training. And we knew the night before what was going on. We knew that uh, those three were out. On top of Mickey Mansfield, who was an All-Australian that year who punched his lung the week before against the Bulldogs. So we knew how we had our uh, work cut out, to be perfectly honest. But what we did do was... Uh, we went am all excited and just thought, what an opportunity! And I was driving. I was living in Melbourne. I'd never moved to Geelong. I, I lived in Melbourne for eight years when I played for the Cats, and I drove back with Lee Tudor and, uh, and Aaron Lord. And Aaron Lord um, was a young player at the time, and he was playing his second game. And we were just excited to be there. For us, I mean, it was, would have been my second ever final. You know, the first final was the week before against the Dogs, and to go out there and then Blighty gave a speech that was, I couldn't tell you one word he said. But I remember just afterwards thinking, wow. And we just went out there with so much belief and we jumped them and we jumped them from the get-go. Gary Senior was captain. He kicked the first goal, I reckon, and we were away. And as the game went on, we just – more and more belief came and more and more anger came from the Carlton players, which was great because I oh, saw that suited the way I played, I guess. But um, they were getting chirpy and and – Kernan was involved and I was playing on Diesel. It was a it was a great win. It was a fantastic win. And um always good to be Carlton at the best of times. But yeah, when you do it and some unlikely players stood up, I, I thought Stephen Hawking's game that day was superb. Uh, Paul Brown was great. Lee Tudor was great. Lordy, obviously, Grant Tanner before he got injured. Uh, I remember Shane Brewer dominating the last quarter for memory. I think Barnes had a, had a blinder. So and Gaza kicked five. So it was just one of those days. We just had a, a brilliant day out. It was a fantastic. It was a fantastic win. It really was. And
1: the following week, uh, Liam, you
0: you of course had
1: that famous preliminary final win over your old club North Melbourne in what a lot of people regard as one of the the great games of the modern era. That must have been surreal to then find yourself in a grand final.
0: Yes, it was. I remember. <laughs> I remember that game. That, that is the best game of footy I've ever played, I've been, ever been involved in, as in, mm-hmm. you, you know, just to play with a standard the game that it was and such a seesawing game to be decided in the last second, really, with Gary Senior taking that mark. And Lee Tudor and I carpooled again because we were both living in Melbourne and we carpooled to the, to the game and we were saying, hey, what's this? We're in a preliminary final against all our old mates. And it was one of those beautiful days. It was a cracking day. They jumped us early. Uh, we really got on top in the second and third quarters and then oh, we were out of gas we were out of gas big time in the last Kerry was putting on a clinic um, the game was a hard game it was a physical game it was it was very fast paced and as I said to come down to Gary taking that mark on the siren scores level was just oh, something you dream of as a kid and you're into a grand final and yeah, I remember going back to the car afterwards, and Lurker and I, which is Lee Tudor, we're just like, can you believe what we did? we were in a grand final? It was just the most exciting thing that I've ever been involved in, I must say. It is one of the it is the best game I've ever seen, ever ever been involved in, I should say. The eighty nine grand final right up there to watch. But gee, I reckon anyone that hasn't seen that game, geez, it was a great game.
4: Lee, many of us lament about the uh, the nineties of a, an era of opportunity lost. From your perspective as a player. How do you view that era and which was the year in your mind that you felt Geelong had their best chance to to walk away with the Premiership? Yeah, there's, there's probably two.
0: Uh, I, 94, we did a great job to make the grand final. 93, we were coming home like a steam train, but we left our run too late. 95, we were a very good team. We were probably the second best team. We had an absolute stinker grand final day. It was... You replay that game 10 more times, it's not open hell they beat us like they did. We just had a stinker. It was just a shocking day. And 97 was the year that I thought with a lot of big names no longer playing, like Gary Senior was injured, Couchy had retired mid-year, Billy was just a, was done. Um, yeah, you know, obviously uh, it was a different group, but that was the year I thought we'd come in with everything going our way, we'd played well, we were gelling as a team that we copped Kerry on a, fr- on a Sunday night, if you can believe it, in the driving rain where he kicked seven out of 11. Staggering. And then uh, they sent us to Adelaide. And then at little Grand Vernon wouldn't pay the lead Colbert mark. And then but a hot- and kicked the goal in the last quarter that was two metres over the line. It wasn't paid. And things went against us. and uh, It's just the rub of the green, I guess. But I thought that was the year we could win it. We were better than St Kilda. We were better than Footscray, in my view um and I thought we had Adelaide covered so yeah I thought we were a bit stiff to be honest but that was the most disappointing I've been in a football year is I just thought 97 was our year you know I think we were the best team to do it and we just didn't things just didn't go our way in the in the, in the finals unfortunately
3: and Pickers of course 97 was a a cracking year for yourself personally winning the Kaji Greaves medal and after that Obviously, battling through injuries, which was enormously disappointing because I dare say you, you probably felt that you had some really good football left in you.
0: Yeah, that was, uh, it was a disappointing way after the you're 97, you feel bulletproof. You know, you've had a good year, whatever. Yourself personally, the team's going well. Um, Pre season was the strongest I've ever had. I was right at the phone all the running. I, I just was fit. And, you know, you get to 20, I always felt. You, you know everything about what you're doing when you're about 27, 28, and I was 28, 29 then. Um, and they were the best years in, in my view as a footballer. I think young in your career, you, you sort of think you know it, but you don't. Your middle years, obviously, if you're you know at the elite level, which I wasn't, but you know, the 24, 23, 24, 25 year olds, but I thought myself at 25 to 28 was when I was going well. And then to get injured in the pre-season, a freak injury, really. Just got slung into the ground in a, in a practice match. I I'd probably you – know, I shouldn't have been playing, in really. I, I told Aizia, I, I, I had four quarters in the seconds and instead of playing off, you playing know, on and off the bench in the first, ready for round one, and I played in the seconds and got slung to the ground off the ball. And just dislocated my shoulder and then did my PCL in about my third game that year. So – I caught the shoulder and the knee in the one season. So that was, that was disappointing and that sort of ruined it from, from then on for me.
2: Pickers, just want to uh, talk to you a little bit about Gary Ayres, you mentioned just there. Uh, obviously he's been a very successful coach, particularly at VFL level with, uh, with Port Melbourne um, over the, over the years. But uh, just, just tell us a little bit about playing under Ezy because he was always such a, a, a strong player. What was he like as a coach?
0: Oh, Ezio, I loved Ezio as a coach. I thought, one, I think he doesn't get the credit he deserves. Took us to a grand final in his first year. Uh, took us to the finals in 96. Took us to the where we should have won at 97, in my view. Um, it wasn't everyone's cup of tea. He had to finish some stars. yet. had to finish some champions. And well, that's hard to do as a coach. But I always felt that he was honest. And if you knew you knew where you, where you stood with Gary is. if Gary is, if you played the way he wanted you to play, you were fine. And I know guys like Lee Colbert and these type of guys, Tim McGraver, and thrived under him, in my view. Now, it was hard for the superstars because he had to you – now, these are guys he's played on and played against, like Bill and Couchy and, you know, and Gary Senior and all that sort of stuff. And he had to put in some discipline in the joint, which was, was difficult for these boys. But um, they even brought it to that, to that point. But I thought he was a very good coach. Um, it wasn't all about tricks but you knew where you stood with him. And I, I think he's judged harshly at Geelong because of the last year. But you know, I found him to be one of my favourite coaches, to be honest.
1: Liam, you shared that last year with him, 99, where you got after the disappointments of 98, you, you got a bit of football into yourself in, in 99 and played some good footy through a patch of the season there. Were you Were you sort of ready to finish at that point? Or did you think you had some football left in you? Because Geelong was sort of transitioning into a... A new era, I suppose. And did, did you
0: thought think that you could go on? No, well, I'm, I did play the 2000 season. I just didn't play a senior game, so that sort of people think I retired at the end of 99. I didn't. May as well have, because I retired midway through 2000. But now I knew I was cooked. I had a shoulder that needed replacing, <laughs> which was not ideal. I was. I played the 98 season uh, after I dislocated in 98. I played with it dislocated for I think it was six months. I didn't know, so it was full of arthritis and it's led to a shoulder replacement these days and I knew I couldn't do that. And then I had my PCL injury as well. So I I was, I was cooked, I was cooked and I was contracted for 2000. So you're hoping that you can get your body right, but no, I was never going to be any value for Mark Thompson in 2000 and 99, I played a few games and played some okay games, but overall, no, it was, uh, it, it was hard to cop because when you get yourself to a level where you're playing good, consistent footy and. All of a sudden, you're getting dropped for the first time since North Melbourne. I felt like, oh, here we go again. I'm back in the North days. <laughs> it's like full circle. But anyway, its uh, I, love this. I love being at the club and I love just trying to play at that level. There's nothing better than playing AFL footy.
4: Liam, post-career, we all know that you got into player management, but what actually sparked your interest in that industry and why did you think you'd be good at it?
0: <laughs> nothing sparked my interest in it. I didn't think I'd be good at it. In fact, I was terrible at it for the first year. What happened was I I fell into it. Like I was going down the coaching track. I retired and then went into, uh, I was coaching at the Western Jets. So that was the direction I wanted to go. And as luck may have it, Johnny Longmire, who was at IMG doing player management. He went to Sydney to coach and him and I are best mates. And he said to me, I think they want to talk to you about my job. I said, I don't want to be a manager. And, IMG, who's the biggest management company in the world, came and said, well, we want you to replace John. I said, no, originally, and they copped that for about a month, and they came back and said, no, we think you're the guy. So I said, as long as I can keep coaching, and then I realized pretty quickly after six months that I couldn't keep coaching, because I was managing AFL players, and I was trying to coach at the TAC Cup level, and um, yeah, so it was just the end of it, which was disappointing. So um, and uh, 20 years later I'm still doing it if you can believe it so anyway
3: because of course uh, this being a Geelong show and us having a strong affiliation and affection for for Gary Jr was it one of the tougher oh, here ones
0: go, Wes. Here, here we go <laughs> hang Man- on hang on author <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want to give
3: too much away here because we want everybody to buy the book, but uh, without, naming, without naming too many names or going into too much detail, it must have been one of the tougher gigs for you uh, trying to get Gaz back to Geelong.
0: Yeah, that wasn't easy, Wes, as you're fully aware of because <laughs> uh, you've, uh, you've been involved in this book that we've, uh, we've been working on for a good time. Uh, look, he's been a dream to manage, uh, love managing him. He's a great little bloke. Uh, the move to Geelong was tough on him. It was really hard. Um, the move back should have been easier than it was. Uh, you know, he'd given them seven years of great service. I think. Yeah, I went through it. It's funny. I went through it the other night on a show I do um, on Channel Nine, and I've had they've had five all Australian selections for Gold Coast. Gary's had four of them <laughs> in their existence in ten years. The only other one that's had an all Australian is Tom Lynch. So they've had five initial ones, and it's four times Gary Junior. So he deserved he deserved to uh, to come home because obviously there were a few issues on you know in his family, which and he was desperate to come back, and he would have retired, and it would have been just a shame not to have seen him back in the hoops. Uh, and I'm glad he went back. Uh, as I said, it was a tough decision for him to go there in the first place, but uh, he's, he's been a good player for the Cats since he's got back to as you know you guys uh, again he gets judged a little bit harshly. I don't know what they expect him to do, but. Jeez, he's been a good player for him for a long time.
2: Absolutely, no doubt about that. Well, Pickers, we we live in very interesting times at the moment with uh, with everything that's going on this year with uh, the world and AFL football in general. Uh, as a player manager, have have you handled that with your your stable of, of players? And uh, what do you what do you think the uh, the future looks like for the game?
0: Oh, the future of the game is a tricky one. I, I hope that it's. It's not list massive list cuts, uh, which I really am concerned about. Um, Yeah, we've been keeping in touch with our players on a regular basis as you can. You can't see them. You know, they're now in lockdown. Unfortunately, we can't get in front of them, but we can actually talk to them and FaceTime them and Zoom them. You know, everyone's just about Zoomed out and team meetings and all this sort of stuff. But um, no, they're going well. The players are going well. They're good. Um, Yeah, as far as what the game looks like, well, we know it's going to be 16 and a half minute quarters this year and thankfully not going on any longer. Now we've got a good Geelong man in there, Steve Hocking, common sense his profile finally.
4: Um,
0: so that's good. Uh, there'll be a percentage of pay cuts, I think, across the, across the industry. There'll be a f- potential fight over there. I hope there's not. But um, hopefully the industry is going to be able to afford, you know, not massive cuts in the list because I, th- I don't want to see young players lose opportunities to play at this great level. Because you can play at AFL footy, uh, you play at that level, I, I think. And you're good enough to play, you should be given the opportunity to. And most of the good ones find their way anyway. So, I hope it's not too many changes. We want to see fans back at the game. I mean, the fans make the game. So, um, it'll be interesting in a few weeks coming up because we've got the crowd noise versus the no crowds and all this sort of thing we we're going to have to talk about. So, um, now I'm excited about it. I can't wait until it comes back. i have to watch another minute of The Voice or a bloody MasterChef. Eddie can... Oh it's it's over for me. I've got to get the footy back on quick sticks.
1: Yes, I think we all feel the same way Liam. Tell us from a from a player management perspective, what's what do you think is the biggest issue for you as a player manager in dealing with uh problems that players have outside of the game?
0: Oh, see, that's a tricky question because uh, I've had a lot, I've had to deal with a lot over a long time. It's because I've been doing it so long, I've been doing it 19 and a half years, so Um, oh look the late night phone calls never ideal when a player's got himself in strife and just think of the players that I've managed over the years buddy Swanee there's been a few of them Um, yeah look I'll tell you what I find that the hardest one and I've been through it with some high publicity cases but not high uh, profile guys to a certain extent or one certainly not is the mental health concerns that, that are real at the moment and they're real in general in life. We know that players struggle with their mental health. Simon Hogan was the first time I really experienced it. I mean, Hogs was really up front about it—a young Geelong player, beautiful person, very smart guy—and um, was really open and honest with it with us. So he invited invited us in when it was all, when he was going through it all at Geelong, and the club was superb. He was just such a he's such a good guy, young guy, but it got on top of him and. That's what happens, it doesn't discriminate. And then Tom Boyd, who was one of my high profile clients, you know, one of he should have been the best on the ground in the Footscray or the Bulldogs Premiership. Uh, if he wasn't, he was second. I think he's voted second in the Norm Smith. Um, and he walked away from the game at 23 years old. So, I mean, that is a concern. Uh, we're getting a lot of support behind now. Uh, and I'm loving the fact that the AFL are putting their support behind it because it's a big part of the game and it's, and it's difficult to deal with because some let you in and some don't let you in and but you're trying to manage it from afar. So I find that the most difficult, you know, the player that, that mucks up and whatever happens, happens. I mean, that's, you deal with that because you're sort of used to it. If someone gets in a scrap at a pub or whatever, you know what it's like, but um, they're the ones that are really tricky because you, you're not sure who you can take it to and you're not sure who also knows. So, and you're dealing with the media on a lot of this stuff too. So you're trying to, keep them at, at arm's distance from the players, which is at times not easy because everyone's got a social media account now and everyone's got a camera. So it's, going, it's getting more and more difficult now to protect the players.
2: Well, Liam, just before we we'll let you go, uh, you mentioned a couple of times earlier in the show about uh, checking in with your father about uh, playing cricket versus playing football and then getting the call from Geelong. Um, obviously, he was a, a very important influence on your life. Tell us a little bit about your dad and does he have any sporting pedigree himself?
0: Yeah, well, he, he was a, an excellent player, my old man, and he's a hard bugger. I'll, I'll give you that. He was, he was a, uh, he was a, he was a hard man. He, he played league footy. He played for North Melbourne in the uh, in the sixties with uh, Alan Aylett and Johnny Dugdale and Laurie Twinkles Dwyer and all these characters. And um, so I grew up a North, massive North Melbourne fan. So when you talk about the old Geelong players, I don't really have a history with the. Ge- I'm massive Geelong now, but. As a kid growing up, I was mad north, so he went blighty. Oh, he's one like of my heroes. My old man was uh, was a very smart guy. Uh, wasn't smart enough to stick at his AFL career. He played six games and went home at 19. But anyway, um, he talks about you know, uh, Bobby Davis coming up and trying to get him to Geelong. But he, for some reason, he didn't like Geelong that much. I'm not sure why. And he went and played at North Melbourne, but oh, he was all for, uh, all for Geelong uh, in the end. And he wishes he had gone there. In fairness, because Roy West went there, his stall man, so Roy West played in the premierships, and the old man chose North Melbourne, thought he'd get it. You know, be a better opportunity to lower clubs. So, but he was a massive influence on my life. Uh, As I said, he was a hard bugger. Um, Hated watching me play cricket. Got real nervous. Uh, Footy, he was probably my biggest supporter. He he had more belief in me than I had in me. If that makes any sense. But uh, we lost him too young. He, He died in '95. So. Um yeah, he, he saw me play in the grand final, um, which was in 94. And then, yeah, we lost in early 95, by like January 95. So, um, he missed out on the 95 year and a couple of years of footy, which he would have loved. So, um, yeah, but he was, a, yeah, he, was a, he was a good man, a very good sportsman. He's a rackman. He's, he's a decent size too. He was six foot three. So, um, back then, uh, that was a big man. And he was a big man in stall and he won a Tui medal, which is like the Brownlow up in the Wimmer League. So, um, I got to collect that because he, he lost it on a countback. So, I got to collect that, you know, um, well after he died, uh, when they gave him the retrospective one, which was great. So, um, uh, he was a big influence.
1: Well, Liam, on behalf of the guys here at the Cats Whiskers, thanks very much for sharing uh, what's a, a lifetime in the game—not just as a player, but also. Uh, in the media and as a player manager. And
0: uh, well done to you. And thanks for joining us this evening. Nah, no worries, guys. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, I listened to Burns' last week, Shannon Burns'. So uh, uh, hopefully I'm half as good as his. Good on you, boys.
3: So coming up is Team Talk with Gus Marini.
4: Now, this week's team talk is Footy's Bad Boys, and we had plenty of nominations for this, I would say, a star-studded lineup, but I don't think they would we'll get to play many games because if we look from the back line, we have Stephen Baker from St Kilda, Roger Merritt and Campbell Brown. Now, collectively, uh, Stephen Baker was suspended for 28 games of his career, Roger Merritt for 13 and Campbell Brown for 29. Now, the half-back line would make anybody shiver. Robbie Muir... Ronnie Andrews, and Rod Grinter. Now, the centre line has a bit of a class about it because there's two Brownlow medalists, Robert DiBomenico, Greg Williams, and David Rhys-Jones. Now, Greg Williams, for his three Brownlow medals, was suspended for 34 games. Uh, And then you look at the forward line, and this is a backman's nightmare, starting with Rene Kink, Dermot Brereton, and Phil Carmen. The full forward line is Mark Jackson, Tony Lockett and Barry Hall. So take your pick about who you would want to play on there. And the rucks are Carl Dittrich, Toby Green and Jimmy Cracker. So Toby Green being the only contemporary player who made the side. The interchange bench, we only have one nomination, which is John Burke, who famously uh, received the lifetime ban um, in an Army Reserve Cup game at the um, I believe it was the old South Melbourne ground. And the, and the coach of the team is Mel Brown. So we've got a father-son combination there of Mel Brown and Campbell Brown. So if we added up all the games that they were suspended for, there's quite a lot. But um, the, the clubhouse leader is, in fact, a Brownlow medalist of Greg Williams with 34 games that he was suspended for. And apart from, as I mentioned, Dipper and Greg Williams, also Tony Lockett, another Brownlow medalist who, who made the cut as well.
2: Oh, Gus, what a what a great team! I must admit, when you uh, when we uh, said that we were going to be having a look at this team, and I and I actually had a look at it, uh, it was just a mouth watering thought to uh, to see this team get out in the park. I I didn't know who my favourite selection of all was, but uh, that half back line you mentioned, by oh, gee, that that'd have you having uh, nightmares if you were facing any of them the following day.
4: Oh, definitely. And, and the thing is, too, with Robbie, take your pick, Robbie Muir Ronnie Andrews or Rod Grinter. you'd probably want to sort of edge your way up to the, uh, the wing position and sort of get out of that forward line, I think.
2: But then, but then you're in danger because you're probably going to line up on
4: David Reese jones possibly. That's the thing. There's nowhere to hide in this team. And like I said earlier, Mark, the problem is they'd probably play for one game and have half the side suspended for the week after. And probably in three weeks, no one would be available. So it is a very hypothetical side indeed.
1: Well, not only did you have uh, two Brownlow medalists, there's, there's two Norm Smith medalists as well in the team. In Rhys Jones, won a Norm Smith medal. Dermot Burton won a Norm Smith medal, I think, or at least he kicked eight goals in a grand final. Tony Lockett's the all time goal kicking, holds an all time goal kicking record. So there's some quality players amongst the bad boy list.
4: Oh, there definitely is, Anthony. And the thing is, too, if you sort of start adding up the games to their tellies and you realise that, as I mentioned before, Greg Williams you know, suspended for 34 games, it's, that's a season and a half. And, you know, that's their games that you could have added to your game telly. Then you got people like Tony Lockett suspended for 23. Now, even if he plays half those games, he no doubt increases the hold he has on the uh, all-time goal-kicking record. Barry Hall, 26 games, would have got him over the 300 mark as well because... Believe it or not, Barry Hall was a very durable player. Apart from the suspensions, he was hardly ever injured.
1: And some of them were suspended for unusual acts. Phil Carmen for headbutting a boundary umpire. Um, yeah. Mel Brown, the coach, was suspended for four matches and missed a grand final in a premiership at Richmond because he threw the ball at an umpire. Yep. So th- these are not your run-of-the-mill uh, suspensions, I suppose. And John Burke, who upended a the on the interchange, who upended an umpire, um, they called it kicking, but it was more, a, well, I suppose it was kicking, it was a more a massive, elaborate trip. So these are not was, normal suspensions.
4: It was, and I think Eric Cantona followed suit a few years later, playing for Manchester United, jumping in the crowds. We saw John Burke also jump, jump over the the fence as well but um, speaking of players rubbed out before a grand final Carl Dittrich would have played in St Kilda's only premiership in 66 Anthony but again was rubbed out just before and for strike, and I think he might have got four to six weeks I can't remember exactly so it is costly when you look at um, you know obviously for players careers and not just the number of games but as you rightly mentioned the the important games that people miss out on Phil Carman um, as we know missed out on Two grand finals, not the one. And the, the chairman of the tribunal at the time said, if I'd known there was going to be a draw, and it would have suspended him for one <laughs> to make sure he was, because he didn't deserve to be suspended for, for two grand finals. But as we know, in 77, Collingwood and North, uh, the first grand final there was a draw, then then Cum was still suspended for the week after.
1: Well, Barry Hall should have been suspended for a grand final when he was alleged to have punched a player in play, even though the ball was 150 metres away.
4: Yeah, exactly. Now that's the one where I think, yeah, you have that scratching head, you know, to to the to the footy pundits, you'd, you'd say Barry Hall should have got rubbed out for that, and probably Carmen deserved Tony Miss the one. So sometimes the footy gods, you know, smile on some, but not on others.
3: What's particularly interesting to me is the what a good player Greg Williams was to think that he had that individual success, yet he was suspended for such a large part of his career, a season and a half. And when you think about the the suspensions interfering with potential Brownlow, not only gaining Brownlow votes, but also just being in contention by in terms of being in accordance with the rules of the Brownlow voting, it's quite an extraordinary achievement by Greg Williams to achieve have achieved what he did.
4: Totally agree with And he's probably one player, and just my own personal opinion, I believe could have won four or five Brownlows, if not for, I suppose... The suspensions, but also two where's The attention that players received in those days as, as compared today, I, I don't think the players would have got away with as much as what they, they were doing to Greg Williams, which doesn't condone his actions. But players could hold on, tag and um, ruffle feathers a lot more back in those days than they can today. They picked up on it a lot, a lot quicker and it's stamped out a lot quicker these days.
2: I think we can almost categorically say that uh, the Greg Williams missed at least one Brownlow medal because there was that uh, the infamous game out at uh, Waverley. I think it was where he had nearly 40 touches and, and I don't think he actually polled a vote in that game, which was, uh, which was amazing and uh, potentially cost him the, the medal that, uh,
4: that year. Yeah, that's right, Mark. And I think the uh, history shows that you know, it's well documented that is because he gave the umpire a bit of lip and, um, and obviously what he did on the ground wasn't taken into consideration. Fair enough, don't give him the three vote, but maybe give him two or one. But the fact that he actually didn't, um, didn't didn't get a vote that game, I think he would have um, pipped Gavin Wanganen for that round one.
3: Umpire John Russo still gets uh, asked a few questions from time to time about that one because he was one of the officiating umpires. So uh, it's a bit of a trivia question, that one, isn't it?
2: I think we were, we were talking just before we came on air about... Uh, Yesterday's football versus today's football, and it'd be interesting to see how those players in the, the bad boys list there would actually fare in today's, um, well, for want of a better word, sanitized game that we have. Um, in in that the uh, that sort of physicality which uh, uh, was present in the game in the seventies and the eighties, how how they actually go in
4: in today's game of football. Yeah, it's interesting point, Mark, Mark, because I think. A lot of those players would have had to, in today's, in today's football, would have to control their aggression or channel it in a different way. But again, like going back to the ball players you had, like say Jim Cracker or Greg Williams, I think if at all possible, they probably would have even been better players today because they would have been allowed to go and get the footy. Um, you know, and whereas there's other examples of players like Dipper and Dermot who just couldn't crash through people. Um, who didn't see the traffic coming. You just, you just can't do that in this day and age. So I think there's a bit of a mixed bag there, but you're spot on. It would be completely different. But those who would survive would have to find ways of channeling their aggression in, 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 in different in, in different avenues.
1: And of course, some of them were victims more of uh, white line fever because someone like Carl Dittrich was a very mild-mannered, softly-spoken school teacher, very much a, a gentle giant in many respects, yet on the field he was... He was as fearsome as any player that's ever played the game.
4: Oh, totally. And, that's, and that white loan feedback, we hear about that a lot. And we hear about that about players like uh, Phil Carmen. He's one of the ones which, Anthony, I, as even as a Geelong supporter, I lament that you know he just didn't see the best of Phil Carmen. He was probably the closest thing I saw to Gary Ablett Sr., um, apart from Malcolm Blight, Phil Carman, Gary, but so you throw them all a blanket over the three of them, because I think if Car- Phil Carman had played 200 games of AFL footy, we would be speaking about him in, in um, a lot greater light than we do today.
3: And it's quite interesting, Gus, uh, you obviously were challenged by uh, Megan Holtz, which, who isn't able to be with us for this particular program, but she did challenge you in the selection of the team and wondered whether Cam Moody might get a mention. But in reality, his record uh, makes him look like a choir boy compared to some of these guys.
4: Exactly. Uh, a choir boy. When you look at the, the, the back line, uh, and you know, if you want to slot him in there with Ronnie Andrews or Robbie Muir or Roger Merritt, or even the forward line with Brereton, Lockett, Jackson... Barry Hall, um, yeah, I, th- I think Cam would be, uh, yeah, be, be a quiet boy at best, Wes.
3: Well, that pretty much wraps up our program for this week. We hope you have enjoyed Gus's team of the week. Uh, if you don't like them then uh, just keep it to yourself because you don't want any of them on your war path. That's uh, my little piece of advice. I give freely to you with regard to that. They were some very, very tough characters indeed. So to Gus Marini, Anthony Petkovic and Mark Brunker, thank you so much for being a part of our program for this week. Our podcast, of course, catching up with Liam Pickering, of course, successful player manager, Uh, albeit as uh, a career path that he didn't choose himself uh, initially that we certainly found out during the course of our program. We hope you've enjoyed the cat's whiskers for another week and we look forward to bringing you more in future weeks.